Welcome to Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Vitreo. We bring you free-flowing conversations with top thought leaders in philanthropy and the nonprofit sector. Sit back, relax, listen and enjoy as we share ideas and discuss topics that are important, timely, and we hope will transform the nonprofit world. Hello, and welcome to Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Vitreo. This is episode 32, and it was recorded on Thursday, October 31st, 2019. I'm Vincent Duckworth. I'm a fundraiser and a partner with Vitreo Group. We are a national agency focused on bold leadership and transformative fundraising. This is our 11th episode of 2019. We were joined by Kathleen McPherson, a senior director from the University of Calgary, Mike Meldrum, CEO of the Calgary Health Trust, Arla Gustafson, CEO of the Royal University Hospital Foundation in Saskatoon, and Ron Bailey, formerly of Ron Bailey and Associates in Winnipeg. Our topic, is volunteerism dead? Are we actually bowling alone? The role of the volunteer in post-millennium philanthropy. The nature of volunteering is changing. Volunteering in Canada remains strong, but there are fewer fundraising volunteers. Join us as we talk about how much of an issue this is and what are its impacts on fundraising in Canada. It's time for the Brain Trust Philanthropy Podcast. Welcome to episode 32 of Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Betrayal. This is our 11th episode of 2019. Our topic today is volunteerism dead? Are we actually bowling alone? The role of the volunteer in post-millennial philanthropy. We have four amazing leaders with us today, all of whom have strong experience working with volunteers. They're excited to be here. I'm excited to be here. Let's get started. First, joining us from Winnipeg, we have Ron Bailey. This is Ron's second appearance on our podcast. He holds the distinction of having been on our very first podcast. Ron joined Brian Bowman, Scott Dexheimer, and me as we muddled our way through our very first foray into podcasting. Now look at us. Welcome back, Ron. Thank you. Ron has been a fundraising consultant for over 27 years. He has served AFP both in Manitoba and at the national and international levels. He is also a close friend and colleague. This past summer, we spent a few days basking in the music and the sun at the Winnipeg Folk Music Festival. And then later in the summer, I joined Ron in his lovely convertible as we drove to Vancouver to attend the Canadian AFP Leadership Retreat. Ron, you also just officially retired. Congratulations. Before we pick your brain about volunteering and volunteers, can you tell us a little bit about why you chose to retire and what the the past few months of retirement have been like? Well, um, uh, I had a major health challenge uh, a few years ago, which uh, uh, woke me up to the realities that uh, uh, we uh, need to uh, live when we can and get on with life and enjoy it. And uh, that was a major motivator. Um, I, uh, have enjoyed working in the sector and I plan to continue as a volunteer in the sector. And if something came along, sure, I'd take a look at it. But my prime motivation is to do some things for myself. And, uh, it's been enjoyable. I, you know, as you mentioned, I went, uh, I drove out to, uh, BC this summer and then I drove to Montreal. I put 13,000 kilometers on my car and, uh, um, I, uh, I uh, enjoy doing that. Uh, uh, my wife and I are going to do a little traveling uh, uh, this uh, this winter, and uh, I uh, am going to get a little more time to do some photography and uh, get back into uh, into my uh, one of my hobbies. So, uh, 
I'm looking forward to it. I, I'm going to move my, my membership status in AFP to retired because I, I don't know that I can actually give up uh, my uh, interest in the sector and, uh, and so on. But uh, I think actively working on a day-to-day basis, I think I'll put that behind me. Well, thanks for that, Ron, and thank you for everything you've done for the sector. We look forward to uh, hearing from you and your volunteer work going forward. So thanks for that. Next, joining us from Saskatoon, we have Arla Gustafson. Like Ron, Arla is not a stranger to our podcast. This is Arla's second appearance. She first joined us on Episode 7 almost exactly two years ago. The topic was nonprofit leadership, and Arla was joined by Nicholas Offord and Yvonne Chenier. It was a fun episode. Welcome back, Arla. Thank you. Arla has been the CEO of the Royal University Hospital Foundation in Saskatoon for the past 12 years. And while she and her team are always busy with the hustle and bustle of working for a health foundation, they have been especially busy recently with the spectacular openings of some very important hospital facilities in Saskatoon. Arla, before we get into today's topic, can you share with us a bit about what's been opened and what that's been like for you and your team? Well, it's been a whirlwind. Uh, A number of years ago, it was announced that there would be a new children's hospital opening in Saskatchewan. In Saskatchewan, um, sort of format or way. Uh, it's not a standalone children's hospital and includes maternal child as well as a brand new um, state-of-the-art adult emergency department. Uh, our foundation through our great ER campaign raised the funding for critical care trauma and uh, we were thrilled on September 29th to open up a brand new, it's called the Royal University Hospital Adult Emergency and it's three and a half times bigger than our current emergency, which was, or the previous one, which was built in 1978 for 22,000 people, and we're currently seeing 66,000. We are the Provincial Trauma Center, Cardiac and Neurology, so there's not a day that doesn't go by where STARS is not landing on the new helipad, and people are whisked down into the trauma bay, so it's pretty exciting. That's amazing. Thanks for sharing that with us, Arla. I know Mike was probably listening quite intently to that, um, you know, with his new work at the Calgary Health Trust, and we'll talk more about that later on, Mike. I don't know if you wanted to to weigh in with anything on that before I I introduce Kathleen. You might still be on mute. Arla, thank you. Uh, Joining us from Calgary, we have Kathleen McPherson. This is Kathleen's first guest appearance on our podcast, and I think, I think her first podcast appearance ever. Is that true, Kathleen? That's true. It's very All right. Well, I'm thrilled that you joined ours. So thanks for joining us and welcome. Thank you. Kathleen recently joined the University of Calgary as a Senior Director of Development after 16 years with the United Way of Calgary and area. Kathleen, you work for most of your professional fundraising career at the United Way an organization that is legendary in how it works with volunteers. So I know we're going to hear more about that. We're going to hear much more about that in just a few minutes. But before that, I'm wondering if you could share with us some of your your biggest learnings in moving from the United Way to one of Canada's leading universities. Yeah, thanks. Well, I mean, first of all, I guess the biggest thing is that um, I've learned that fundraising is fundraising wherever you go, that it's really all about relationships and making connections with people. So that's no different than what I was doing uh, for the last you know, number of years at United Way. 
I do find coming here that uh, there's a lot of exciting stuff going on. We're in the final phases of an ambitious $1.3 billion uh, fundraising campaign uh, in support of our Eyes High strategic plan. And there's real opportunity to do some exciting um, new work, particularly in the area of innovation and entrepreneur entrepreneurship, and that's institution-wide. So pretty excited about that because uh, more ability to really approach how we're building relationships and partnerships with donors and be very donor-centered in our approach. But the one thing I have to say that I am missing a bit is uh, we don't seem to work with and engage volunteers as much here at the university as we did at United Way. And that was uh, uh, one of the parts of my job there that I enjoyed the most. So I'm looking forward to the conversation today. Yeah, and I'm going to actually introduce, thanks for that, Kathleen. I'm going to introduce the topic uh, kind of along that line, too. So you'll hear that in a few minutes. So I'm glad that you brought that up, and welcome to the podcast again. Um, finally, also joining us from Calgary, we have Mike Meldrum. Like Kathleen, this is Mike's first appearance on our podcast, but unlike Kathleen, Mike was on his first podcast just a few weeks ago. Mike was a guest on Doug Nelson's Great Discovery Pod podcast, which was posted, I think, yesterday. So welcome, Mike. Thank you. Mike and I have been colleagues and friends for a long time. We both worked at the University of Alberta together, and we both worked at the Northern Alberta Institute of Technology in similar roles, but at different times. Mike has recently been appointed as CEO of the Calgary Health Trust. Mike and his family are no strangers to Calgary, nor, as it turns out, to the Calgary Health Trust. In an earlier chapter of his life, Mike got his undergraduate degree from the University of Calgary and worked at the Calgary Health Trust in regular giving. That is truly full circle. Mike, before we get into today's, today's topic, I'm wondering, can you share with us what it's like coming back to an organization that you worked for very early in your career, but now as its CEO? Yeah, certainly. Um, you know, it's, it's a little surreal. I, I Back, as you mentioned, back when I was doing my undergraduate degree, I had a part-time job at the Foothills Hospital Foundation, and there I was working with their annual giving program, and I I literally spoke to hundreds if not thousands of past patients of the Foothills Hospital as I talked about their care and uh, and then asked them to support uh, the hospital through a donation. And so uh, it is interesting uh, and, and little did I know that that would become my career, sort of fundraising and in the nonprofit sector. So um, it was just a part-time job, but uh, as happens with many of us, it ended up being a career and uh, it's been a wonderful career and to come back now and to... Uh, you know, I was, had a very junior role there and to come back, but to see the great work that the trust has done in my absence over the last 23 plus years has been wonderful and uh, it's exciting. I, no one no one is familiar uh, that I worked with back then here, but uh, there's a few people in the community <laughs> that I am still running into that have been involved. So. That's a nice way of saying, say, say, I don't know anybody here yet. Uh, all, all of my friends left. That's great. Um, and I know, Mike, uh, you were also, I think, um, in the process of, of, of moving back to Calgary. Is that correct? I know you're working day to day. Yeah, but uh, yeah, so you're so working I'm on that. Still so we're commuting sort of back and forth, but we're in the process of building a home here in Calgary again and uh, looking forward to that. And so that'll happen over the next uh, several months. That's great. Well, um, I, I don't want to say welcome to Calgary. I want to say welcome back to Calgary. So glad, glad to have you here. We're excited. Okay. Let's get started. Thank you all for joining us on this, our 32nd podcast. 
if you look at the theory of fundraising as defined by, by our credentialing body, CFRE, there, there are six knowledge domains of professional practice. One of those domains is called volunteer involvement. Before becoming a fundraising consultant, like Kathleen, I worked in, uh, and Mike, uh, I worked in higher education as a fundraiser for 12 years. During that time, I honestly had very little direct interaction with fundraising volunteers, and we heard from Kathleen about that was one of the biggest sort of things that she misses. I, um, I had strong interactions with board volunteers, but very little with fundraising volunteers. As a consultant, however, I have worked with many clients who, are, who very much depend on strong fundraising volunteers. Over my fundraising career, and, and actually long before my career started, the nature of volunteering was beginning to change. While volunteering in Canada remains strong, there appears to be fewer fundraising volunteers. Uh, is that true? I, I don't know. If it is, what are the impacts to having less fundraising volunteers? Uh, is this trend a good thing, or are we doomed? Arla, I'm going to kick it off to you. What are your thoughts? Well, I, having come also from the United Way movement, and like Kathleen, uh, that was one of the biggest changes for me because those volunteers are the lifeblood of how you get so deeply into the community. I believe, and I actually spent some time yesterday doing a tour of our hospital, speaking about the capital campaigns that we've held back over the 36 years that we've been a foundation. Out of our last eight campaigns, four of those campaigns that we've raised money for have engaged the traditional model of a volunteer campaign cabinet and have had volunteer ambassadors that include family members and patients, and we've reached a lot deeper into the community using them. I think that we have um, changed how we use volunteers somewhat as it relates to uh, some of the other fundraising we're doing, but I still really believe that there is an opportunity for donors or people who are volunteers and or donor volunteers to be the extension of who we are to have the conversations open the doors. So I heard at the campaign cabinet level, that's, that's, that's still as it has been historically and really important, but some things underneath that are starting to change. It, they are. Um, and a lot, you know, I, we haven't engaged in anything longer than a three-year campaign in the 12 years that I've been here. Um, most of them have been annual campaigns. So if I was structuring a multi-year, five to seven-year campaign, I think it would be a real challenge to keep volunteers in today's reality for that length of time. That's a great observation. I'm going to kick it out to the group. Who wants to weigh in and tag to that? Are we doomed? Uh, are volunteers looking for shorter opportunities, or um, have we totally missed the boat and everything's just fine? I'll weigh in, uh, uh, Vincent. Go ahead, Kathleen, uh, and then we'll come to you, Ron. Sure. I, I mean, I'm, I feel quite strongly that volunteers are um, really critical and important to um, how we do our work as fundraisers. Um, I mean, it's what other better way can you access um, larger networks and, you know, friends of friends and and the people that uh, are closest to you to really be telling your story and being your advocates and ambassadors. And I know from experience that that peer-to-peer -peer kind of ask uh, often is much more effective than it is uh, sometimes for us as the representatives of our organizations to go in and make the ask. And at the same time, we're really bringing those people and those volunteers closer to us. 
But it's definitely hard work to manage volunteers, particularly highly skilled senior volunteers. Uh, you have to be very thoughtful about how you're doing it and making sure that um, it's high quality and that they're actually doing some tasks uh, that are providing value and that they feel valued as they're doing that work. So it's not an easy thing. I know a lot of my um, younger staff that I've mentored through the years have often said, oh, well, we could do a better job ourselves. And I don't think that's true. I think we need um, the power of the community, and that's really how the magic happens. So, Kathleen, uh, um, Ron, I'm going to come to you in just a second. Um, yeah. I just want to capture that last bit about... Um, so give me an example, like working with um, with senior volunteers uh, is is worth it, but hard to do. Can you give me an example of some of the things you need to think about when working with senior volunteers? Sure. I know our I mean, audience is going to want to hear it. So, Well, it's not the same, obviously, approach as how you would be working with your staff. I mean, you've got some very highly skilled people, often they're business leaders, they're, you know, uh, CEOs of companies or senior executives in their companies. So you have to make sure that you're being planful when you're interacting with them uh, and, you know, using their time well. So, uh, you know, coming prepared um, as a representative of, of your organization with anything that you think that might come up in the conversation you're having with them. So, you know, having the list. Some of them are detail-oriented and they kind of want to dig down. Some of them are much more higher level, like review and approve <laughs> type of approach. But I think it's just being prepared, um, you know, knowing what their history is and how they've engaged before. And the one thing I always say to my staff is that, you know, just ask them. Ask them how they want to be involved, how they want to engage, and then try and find um, the, the right fit for them. Uh, but really it's about accessing their networks and the people that they know so that they can be the ambassadors. That's great. Ron, you have the floor. Yeah. Well, I was going to say that uh, I've worked um, with volunteers as a consultant, and I've, I am a volunteer, so I have worn this hat in a couple of different ways. And my sense is that, um, and, and it's generally been in smaller organizations, although as, as I, uh, I am also a, a graduate of the School of United Way, back in the 80s and worked with a lot of volunteers and as a very volunteer-driven uh, organization and experience and really relies on that cycle just to continue and roll along. But a lot of smaller organizations either don't know how to engage volunteers very well um, or they get stuck in, we've always done it this way and we're, we're, we're just not able to to rethink how how we uh, involve those or those volunteers and that people who you know I chair a, a, a foundation of sort of a small organization here in Winnipeg and that emerged really because the original organization people just didn't want to ask for money they just were not comfortable doing that but we needed to raise money and so we ultimately set up a separate foundation to really take that on and those folks wanted to take that task on not everybody feels comfortable doing that and so you really need to create the opportunity for people who have driven that way some are very detailed oriented us others have lots of experience and it's really up to the fundraising uh, staff to really customize the experience based on i think what catherine was saying is like how do you want to work work with this on this and not make assumptions about 
um, their comfort level on certain things. They might want to do certain things, but they need a little bit of training or how to make an ask and so on. And so I think it, it, it's not universal uh, in terms of an approach. And while the CFRE might suggest that there's certain benchmarks, that's really going to ebb and flow based on, on the size of the organization and uh, uh, the experience of, of the volunteers. Um, so that's kind of my thoughts uh, uh, about it at this point. So echoing a lot of what, what Kathleen said. So thank you for that, Ron. Mike, I want to give you an opportunity to weigh in as well. You've heard from three volunteer masters. Uh, as, you know, you get to follow them. Good luck. Yeah, <laughs> thanks. Uh, I would say, you know, to me, it's not unlike the matching exercise uh, with don't with potential donors that we're looking at the needs of our organization and we're trying to match those with the with the needs and the interests of the donors. And I, I think the same is true of the volunteers, fundraising volunteers. Uh, I would agree with what Ron said that we need to be uh, somewhat nimble as organizations and really be masters of that matching, matching the skills and abilities of those volunteers with the needs of the organization. And I think being a little creative about it and uh, and also not necessarily doing it the same way we've always done it. A uh, traditional cabinet for a campaign may work great, but uh, it doesn't mean other structures couldn't potentially uh, provide value to the organization uh, and harness that uh, the value of volunteers. Thanks, Mike. We've got I, um, people who love doing. There's people who love doing special events, for example, and that's they thrive on it. It's something which they participate in. Um, they're not looking for a campaign cabinet experience. This is a short-term, you know, four, five, six months uh, adventure. They work with their friends. They bring them together. They undertake it for a particular cause. And uh, they get on, and th that's much different than a cabinet experience. That's much different than than making corporate asks. That's much different than guiding the fundraising campaign uh, in in major gifts or in in uh, planned giving. Right? They're looking for a different it, kind of experience, much short term. It absolutely ahead, is, and I think of some of our third party events where sometimes we don't even know of the people who are doing the event until they show up at our office with the pot of money or the check. Um, but I think of the millennial generation and a young woman who just had an incredible event um, that we just heard about. Uh, she'd had a cardiac issue and mobilized a bunch of her friends who all then went out and put together this great night and raised a ton of money. And they gave of their time. They invited others to attend the event and it began and ended in less than three months and they were just so proud of what they're doing and they've already started for next year. And they are under 30. Well, that's a great segue into um, what has changed in, in volunteering and in volunteers uh, in the marketplace. Anybody want to, I mean, obviously, um, uh, uh, some things have stayed the same, but some things have started to evolve. Anybody want to wait? I think we've, I think we've aged. <laughs> and I think, okay. it, you know what, it's, it's part of that um, change, you know, as people like Ron who are for, have made a decision to retire are looking at ways that they can be involved in the community, maybe as volunteers. 
I have a large group of friends, I'm in my 60s, who are retired, who are volunteering now for the first time in many, many years. But I also am connected with a lot of young people through my children who are in their 30s. And they're connecting in different ways in the community. They all have volunteer responsibilities, which is really interesting and good, but very different than the, the long-term commitment. And it's connected to the difference they can make right now. Yeah. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I heard um, maybe not a lot has changed. I think it has changed, but it hasn't changed. I think the same right. reason why people give of their time, um, benefiting the community, that there's that personal side, it's building skill sets. It's also about relationship. It's, it's keeping doors open, but it's also meeting new people and it's advancing your career. And very much, you know, there's very few opportunities, I think, especially of younger people, um, younger, um, well, youth and young adults to get that kind of experience if they are looking at making changes in their career. And volunteerism is often that way to do it. I have a thought on this, uh, Vince. Yeah, Mike, weigh in. So with respect to, uh, so I would agree with what Arla said, but I wonder if with some of the younger volunteers, when we look at younger people, I wonder if they're less likely to sort of accept the regular structures we have for how fundraisers, uh, fundraising volunteers want to be involved. So less likely to sort of join the cabinet at 40 to 50 years old and stay there for a number of years and be involved and more likely to sort of set their own terms as to how they're engaged. I like what Arla said earlier about the group of her sort of uh, children's friends at the age of, I think they were around 30, that went and mm -hmm. did their own sort of fundraising initiative because it was a cause personal to that individual. And I heard about another group in Calgary that is formed of young women, mothers, that are coming together to address some of the health uh, issues in uh, the community. And they've done this very much on their own. And uh, and so I could see there being an organization, another nonprofit that they might link up to. In fact, they choose a different one each year. But it's kind of, uh, they're creating their own sort of structures and ways they want to engage. And uh, sometimes it might be folded into their own way that they want to interact socially and uh, their hobbies and interests as well. But uh, I think that's a trend that we're seeing is more... Uh, uh, they're, them being, being more selective and creative in their own structures and ways that they want to engage. And self-directed, I'm hearing. Yes. Right. So instead of providing us providing this landscape of opportunities that they can pick and choose from, they're creating their own and then finding places for them to land. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So I guess one of the nice things about this I'm hearing is in the age of a virtual friends, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, etc., um, there is still a strong need to actually interact uh, live and in person. Oh, for sure. Uh, absolutely. I think that's one of the real uh, drivers for um, a, a lot of folks who um, come together uh, around a particular cause in the community. I think that's what you see when when you see people respond to a uh, uh, a, a particular, you know, family problem, you know, the house burns down, people come together in the community and, and respond, and that it's short-term. It allows people to come together. Um, so, I, yeah, absolutely, it gives people that, that sense of uh, 
we're not isolated. There are opportunities for us to come together. And in the absence of some other um, uh, vehicles for that, um, I think that uh, you know churches, political organizations, and so on, which are not as attractive to folks, that they're just they're either seen as not as relevant to their lives or uh, don't have the ways of they're too maybe they're too structured. People look for other ways of coming together on their terms to respond as humans to a particular cause or an issue, and uh, uh, I think that's expressed in the way that they volunteer, for sure. Well, and the reality of that we live in now with technology and the 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 quick response through social media and other and other methods of communication, you can bring a community together around getting behind something where before you may not have had those relationships because people know people and if it if it right. you know connects to their heart and they want to be involved, it's amazing how you can mobilize people to do this in a way that some people view it as volunteering to get something done where before they may not even have known about it. Right. The, the pace of technology and the speed of communication. Absolutely. Oh. Um, yeah. C Kathleen, you left the United yeah. Way uh, six months ago. And um, what was the United Way doing with the next generation of volunteers? Uh, I'm not talking about the, the cabinet sure. level volunteers. Well, I think I think across uh, there's opportunity to you have to offer a number of different options and be nimble as an organization. I mean, we all live in a Netflix world now, so people are looking for often they're looking for curated content for them and you know a range of opportunities. So I think that is the direction that we were headed in is looking at you know what are some of the those immediate kind of maybe episodic uh, volunteer opportunities that people can engage with. And sometimes it's volunteerism, but sometimes it's also that whole engagement and education piece. Like how do you bring people closer to the organization through, you know, uh, a talk or some kind of experiential thing? And then they kind of test the waters and then they might uh, get more, more engaged and want to do uh, a bigger volunteer role. But it's all digital. Everything's digital now. You need to be offering those types of opportunities. And often it's curated. Um, so, you know, based on the behaviors of people online and or what they've engaged with or attended before, I do think there's still a place for volunteerism uh, for us to be asking people. People like to be asked to be involved. Uh, and it is an opportunity to bring people closer to your organization. So I think there's still an opportunity for a range of how we're engaging people. And we really, as a, as a sector, need to be nimble and need to be thinking about how we can use technology to advance that for us. I want to come back to being nimble and using technology, um, but I also, I may have just cut someone off. Is that yeah, you, Orla? It is, and I, I'm just reflecting on uh, the United Way in Saskatoon, and uh, they have the Gen X um, group that came out of uh, their uh, look at what younger people within workplaces and in the community were looking at. And it continues to really move forward and more and more people joining. 
and it is experiential, as you had said, Kathleen, and um, it is very much about education, but it's also about what they're, they are then doing to give back to the community and they make those Absolutely. decisions. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, that's what so, people are looking for. They're looking for networking opportunities. They're mm-hmm. looking to give back, make a difference, learn more, become engaged. So Kathleen, before before we open it up to the wider group again, can you you mentioned the word curated experiences and the word curated sure. twice. Uh, I love I, those yeah, words, I, by the way. I, I, I love <laughs> them, but I would like them unpacked a bit for our listening audience sure. because yeah. um, they can be kind of big words. Um, and and I, I think I know what they mean, but let's have you unpack them from the experiences yeah, sure. you've had. What, what, what does that mean? Well, I mean, it's just like your experience on Netflix. So based on what you've watched before or what you've clicked on, you know, the content that pops up for you when you log into Netflix is based on what your past past behavior has been. Uh, so I think that's the direction that we as a sector need to be moving in, is looking at, you know, how have people engaged with us in the past, either as a donor or, like, where have they given or what events have they attended or, you know, how have they interacted with us? And then us being very donor-centered or, um, constituent centered in terms of reflecting that back to them and offering them opportunities that align with what their past behaviors are telling us. Thank you for that. Um, Mike, I want to just reach into, um, I, and I know it, you're, 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 you're uh, new back at the Calgary Health Trust and have worked in education for a long time, but I think you've had enough time on your feet um, there to maybe give us some sense of what is the Calgary Health Trust doing with the next generation of volunteers? Right. Well, we are. Uh, we actually involve. Actually, it's interesting. I wanted to use a bit of a case uh, study or example from the Calgary Health Trust over the last year and a half. Clearly, I wasn't here that whole time, but we made a change at each of the hospital sites that we have. So there's four different acute care centers, and we have fund development councils that largely have been focused on events. So when Ron was talking earlier about, and we talked in general about people having different volunteer sort of opportunities for people, a lot of these people would come to these sites as really, or come on these fund development councils, uh, helping with the events around the hospital and sort of community ambassadors. And we wanted, uh, back a year and a half ago, there wanted to be more of a focus on uh, the major gift fundraising capacity and leveraging our volunteers to help us in that regard. And so we we changed the terms of reference to be a little more focused there and it was interesting because it wasn't all positive from the standpoint it was it was clearly tough for a lot of the volunteers that were recruited and involved in the event side to really make that shift and so some really uh, stepped away and some just kind of indicated that uh, they weren't comfortable with that shift Uh, some just became a little quiet Uh, and so and then some did step up and really enjoyed it and it was I, I think for those individuals it was almost like an educational opportunity where they could learn more about you know the major gift fundraising and this other element of sort of having a, a bigger impact and working with uh, community leaders and uh, and so they were excited and energized by that but it just speaks about that need to have different opportunities and uh, I think uh, we've had some exciting opportunities around sort of third-party fundraising where we've had some of the younger demographic that have stepped up with their friends and have really made things happen as far as uh, big events. And so I think uh, we haven't gone the direction yet of having sort of a 
focused younger group of volunteers. I could see us moving that direction down the road. But for right now, it's really had happened more organically where we've had younger individuals in the community that have stepped up and wanted to have impact on a particular health issue that have gathered their friends. In some, in some cases, they've been quite strategic with how they've done it and uh, combined with businesses and other organizations, gotten sponsorship and really moved an event forward. But that's a little bit about uh, where I see, see us going with respect to younger volunteers. Thanks for that, Mike. Arla, did you um, did you want to add to that? Well, from your perspective, I think, you know, it's interesting. I work within a hospital setting, and uh, think back to the days of candy stripers, which don't exist in our province <laughs> anymore. <laughs> That's a but, <laughs> And I don't know if they exist in other provinces or some sort of new variation of them. But what I have heard from nurses that are fifty plus is. Almost all of them started as a candy striper or had an interest as a candy striper when they were in high school. And that was what gave them the passion then to go into nursing and go through their career. But we have thousands of volunteers within the healthcare system, many of them young, um, who university that are coming forward to be volunteers in various capacities. Um, and I think of there, many of them are using it as a stepping stone to get into still a college that they want to go to. And that's why they're attracted to healthcare. Right. Do we still have candy stripers? Not in Saskatchewan. No, I don't know. Not, I don't think we have them here either. No, but I think most of us remember the term. Uh, yeah. uh, and so um, just, just for... Um, uh, somebody, uh, we can save them Googling it. Arlo, what was a candy striper? Uh, they were an extension of the work that was happening within a hospital. Uh, they were trained to be able to assist in all areas, whether it was from greeting to working in some of the shops to being at the bedside to work with the nursing groups. And they had very, they had responsibilities that were counted on and were also approved through the unions as somebody who was an integral part of the team. Right. So they would be young people mostly. Usually high school. Yeah. That's when and they, they would, usually started. Yeah. And they would, uh, they would come and they would read to patients or they'd help with the libraries or they'd do all kinds of things. That was a very yeah. interesting aspect. So that's, mm -hmm. that's really interesting. Um, Ron, we haven't heard from you for a while, and uh, you've probably yeah. got some points of, uh, of convergence or thought. You want to share some of that? Well, with I was I was uh, reflecting on some of the points that Mike was making in terms of a, a range of opportunities and people, I don't know if the word is migrate, but let's use that word, from um, um, a, a lot of special event uh, experience into um, uh, major gifts. And uh, I think one of the tricks... Uh, for uh, engaging folks uh, in other kinds of activities is to really go through and sharing the, the financial realities of putting on events and, and that the efforts are appreciated, but there are major expenses in doing that, that the costs of, of raising uh, funds using special events can be uh, a little high and that there might be other ways of raising money and gently trying to work with people into donor contact. One of the things we're doing at, uh, at uh, Rosbrook House 
is we do a lot of volunteer uh, engagement with our, um, and I'm a, that's the foundation I'm sharing. We do what we're doing now is calling uh, a lot of our donors and using volunteers to make all of those calls, and they love it. They're getting positive okay. feedback from from people. They're starting to make those kinds of personal uh, outreach, and that's one of the steps towards getting them feeling more comfortable in uh, soliciting funds as we as we build towards. Uh, a major gift campaign and in the future so that's you know an example of giving people a taste of something like that and then building it into a larger picture but that we really only moved into that as we talked about the finances and what we were trying to accomplish and what we needed to try to accomplish and people realized you know heck if we're going to build this foundation up we've got to raise some serious dollars and that's going to take a major gifts campaign rather than um, a series of luncheons or, or a dinner every couple of years. So people are, um, as you share that with people, you can uh, engage them. And I, you know, I, we were talking about volunteers and candy strivers and so on. I think I'm, I'm looking at this from a fundraising point of view and not simply a programming point of view. And I think, you know, but in all areas, you need to give people a variety of experiences. But in the fundraising area, and it, it really is a contact sport and that uh, we really have to find ways of giving people ways of interacting with the public or other donors, sharing their enthusiasm for the cause and uh, trying to get them to engage with uh, with other supporters in, 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 in making a, con- a financial contribution and a commitment to the organization. And, the, and volunteers are the best to do that. Uh, hired guns, either as consultants or as uh, a staff, um, I would suggest are uh, not as effective. And uh, okay. but you have to look for the different kind of opportunities. So those are great reminders, Ron. I um, I'm mindful of uh, of of our time on the podcast. And in the last uh, sort of uh, five minutes before I turn the platform over to each of you to to share some more stuff with us. Uh, is there something that you really wanted to bring to the table today? You wanted to share with our listening audience something that you you had. Oh, I really want to talk about this. So I'm opening it up for the group. I uh, uh, I, I won't I, I won't uh, hold you to anything. But if you have something that you wanted to bring up that you haven't had a chance to talk about yet, uh, put it on the table. Anyone? Well, one of the things one of the things I was going to say is that in the fundraising uh, profession. We see a lot of churn going on. It's a huge issue within the sector of churning of staff, turning over every 18 months, every two years. I don't remember what the averages are, Vincent, but that goes on in the sector. We lose people. And I think one of the things that happens um, is that we, we rely so much on staff and put so much pressure on staff to uh, achieve certain financial results that we forget that we have this potential to involve volunteers to take on some of the, the burden, not necessarily to you know, take away responsibility from staff to, to, to achieve certain things, but by putting it all on staff and having staff take that all on, we short, we short circuit the ability of the organization to build for the long term. We look at very short term goals and we don't think about the ways that uh, the advantages that we would have by involving volunteers to build the long-term capacity of the organization and volunteer leadership to lead it into the future. 
Well, Ron, you brought that full circle from what Kathleen talked about, about how critical it is that we don't forget um, how important uh, the role of the volunteer is, even just in the, you know, the credibility of our work. So um, uh, anybody want to tag into what Ron was saying? Well, the piece that I think is often forgotten and where many of the struggles happen, especially if you're looking at smaller organizations as well as large, is that it does take resources, it does take time, and it takes a dedicated understanding of working with volunteers to really support them and continue to connect with them so that they feel that their role is important. And there's rarely money that is available to do that. And when you look at the roles of Volunteer Canada and how they have, you know, I think really had to change their focus over the years within our province, the Volunteer Centre closed. Um, and even within our health authority, um, they, they get next to no funding. They do f support some staff, one and a half staff, but there's no funding to do anything else, including volunteer recognition. So if we do want to continue to evolve the role of volunteers and use them, we have to also identify that there is a real cost to actually doing that work. Great reminder. Um, uh, someone told really me, it's such an important underline. I, 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 I am, I'm actually going to turn it over to you, Kathleen, because I heard you coming in. Sure. Well, and to, to build on that, I mean, you're right, there isn't often a budget attached to that. But I know personally that uh, the, my experience in having worked with some of the senior volunteers that I've worked with has been an amazing part of my experience as a fundraiser. Many of those individuals are, you know, very... Uh, experienced leaders in our community, leaders in business, and I probably never would have had the chance to work with them had they not come on in a volunteer capacity. And many of them have been huge mentors to me, and I would consider some of them friends now. So mm -hmm. I think there's also that piece that we need to weave in and consider that there is an opportunity to learn new skills and, and have um, the opportunity to work with somebody who might think about our work in a slightly different way and really bring a new perspective. So I've had huge value during my career from uh, from being connected to some of those volunteers. And Kathleen, I would uh, echo that. There isn't a place that I go that I'm still not connecting to people that I used to work with um, where they were volunteers in previous positions and continue right. to recycle some of them where appropriate. Exactly. That's great. Um, Mike, I, I don't want to leave you on the sidelines. Did you want to weigh in on, on, uh, on, on something that uh, Ron started or something new? Yeah, just as you were talking about anything that we'd like to sort of bring up, I mean, getting a little more sort of philosophical when, you know, and looking at the topic of the podcast, I do think that uh, while things are changing, I do think that that general need for people and desire for people to engage and to belong and to have impact isn't changing. I think uh, we need to be nimble as we've talked about and we need to be creative in how we do that. But I don't see people all of a sudden not becoming passionate about helping their community and having impact within their community. So I think it's, it's back to us to figure out how we do that. And I really liked uh, Kathleen's comments about how it also helps us as a sector and as individuals to have different perspectives that are removed from sort of the uh, the operations as sort of fundraising staff and leadership of the nonprofits to have that 
external perspective helps us to be more connected to the community as well, which is uh, very valuable in our work. Thanks for that, Mike. And that was a great, uh, great way to um, uh, segue to me to drawing this to a close. We could have many podcasts about this, and I hope we do. Uh, you know, uh, a whole podcast on on peer to peer. That whole that whole chasm between I love events, I hate events, uh, and how to involve uh, uh, volunteers in there. Uh, you know, um, I was really um, uh, uh, interested to hear that volunteers as mentors to us as leaders and as fundraisers. So that's that's really something important. Uh, there are the trends around self-directed volunteerism, but also the the fact that what remains, as Mike just said, is the desire to engage, to involve, and, and have impact. So w- with that, you know, I thank you all. You've been great guests. Uh, Kathleen, Mike, Arla, Ron, I can't wait to have each of you back on our podcast, and we will. Um, but before we go, I want to give each of you the chance to tell us a little bit more about, about what you're working on or the way best places people can reach you or your pet peeve or, or, or something that you want to talk about uh, just uh, related to the topic or not. And Kathleen, we'll start with you. Anything you want our sure. listening audience to hear or know or think about? Sure. I mean, uh, first of all, you can uh, reach me if you want on Twitter uh, at Kathleen MacP, that's M-A-C-P, or you can reach me uh, by email at kathleen.mcpherson at ucalgary.ca. Um, as I mentioned before, we're in the final phases of our uh, our big campaign, so we're still actively raising funds towards our $1.3 billion goal, uh, and we're getting there, uh, but we still need the community support to push through to that. So we're anticipating to close uh, by June of 2020, so we're very excited about that. Uh, we do have an upcoming uh, event, Idea Exchange, uh, focused on uh, pluralism and global citizenship, which is actually an interesting extension of our conversation today, but it's coming up on November 20th at Hudson, so we'd love for people to attend, uh, and they can register just at ucalgary.ca and search Idea Exchange. That's great. Thanks, Kathleen. Ron, you have the floor. Well, um, if folks would like to reach me, I can be reached at ron at rbailey, R-B-A-I-L-E-Y dot C-A. And uh, I just wanted just to remind all of us that to remember um, that fundraising is a contact sport, and we need volunteers to open doors, to make asks, to uh, remind us of the importance of the cause because often they come from the cause and they're, they're very passionate about it and that um, with volunteers' uh, opportunities are out there. We should volunteer to get that experience as well as as, uh, as fundraisers to, to see how, how it can uh, impact our lives and, and uh, uh, maybe there's some practices that we could pick up on that would bring to our own shops. And I just wanted to remind people that uh, uh, that National Philanthropy Day is on November the 15th, uh, celebrating philanthropy, celebrating volunteer leadership in fundraising, and uh, will take place in all of our communities across Canada. And uh, that's something for, for folks to look out for. Thank you for that, Ron. And in fact, this podcast will be published on November the 14th, the day before Canada's official National Philanthropy Day. Arla, what would you like to share with our listening audience? 
I'm going to reinforce what Ron said about National Philanthropy Day in our community. It's, I think it's one of the uh, best ways for communities to come together. We have over 400 people and we still um, honor every single person who's nominated. So there is no competition to it and it's a way for us to say thank you. Um, we have the most exciting opportunity ahead of us in the sense that with the opening of the new children's hospital, we have 127,000 square feet of what is called decanted space, empty space. And this is our next major campaign. Uh, we're working with our health authority and the ministry around what might happen here. And it will keep me in the sector for a long time because I think it's the opportunity to really change how healthcare is delivered and uh, meet uh, the reality of technology, um, artificial intelligence, and providing the right tools for um, our frontline staff and improving patient care. So it's an exciting time. And in healthcare, there's not a day that is not humbling. Well, that's beautiful. Thank you, Arla. And um, that whole topic of AI in healthcare is an entire podcast series. So thank oh, you for sharing that. Thank you for sharing that. I, I can't wait to see what you're going to do with that decanted space. Mike, you get to close us out. What do you want uh, the listening audience to hear or what do you want to say to us? Sure. So I will just uh, share my contact information, michael.meldrum at calgaryhealthtrust.ca and Twitter at mcmeldrum. But uh, one of the things I thought I would, uh, you know, one of the priorities for the Calgary Health Trust, of course, it's about building a healthier Calgary. And uh, one of our priorities right now is a campaign for $60 million on maternal and newborn health. And I thought I would share one of the things that, that is, we're focused on right now is we've had the great benefit of a strong community member by the name of Lloyd and uh, Lloyd and Flo Cooper is the name of the couple, and they owned a very popular roller rink for over 40 years mm -hmm. in Calgary. And most people love that roller rink. Yeah, and and they actually through their estate, it's beautiful from the standpoint of they wanted they created the roller rink to bring families together, and they wanted to be able to do that, continue to do that in the community, and so they provided. $2.5 million of their estate to match all contributions until the end of the year, obviously directed by their executors, but matching all contributions and donations to the maternal and newborn health, newborn needs campaign up until the end of the year. And so it's kind of a neat illustration of, of what we're talking about, members of the community that are really trying to give back and have impact and continue to do so with their legacy. And so that's uh, something I wanted to highlight. Thanks, Mike. That's a beautiful story. I um, again want to thank all of you for participating. I want to I want to I want to thank everyone everywhere who volunteers. It uh, it's what makes uh, our civil society really work. And so I want to thank the, everyone out there. And as I see uh, the snow starting to blow in Calgary, I'm sorry to say that. Of course, you'll hear this two weeks from now, and it'll be nice and schnooky. Um, I'm going to say Happy Halloween to, to everybody. Again, you have to go into the past. But with that, our gift of another brain trust philanthropy powered by Vitreo has been committed. Well, that's about it for this episode of Brain Trust Philanthropy. I hope you'll join us next month for our last episode of the year when we will be visiting with Mike Geiger, President and CEO of the Association of Fundraising Professionals, Paula Atfield, President of Stephen Thomas Limited, Roger Ali, President and CEO of the Niagara Health Foundation, and Scott Dexheimer. President and CEO of Vitreo Group. Our topic, Global Trends in Philanthropy, What to Expect in 2020.
Brain Trust Philanthropy is powered by Vitreo and is produced by Lauren McMurray at Alchemy Communications and by me, Vincent Duckworth. Brain Trust Philanthropy is recorded in beautiful downtown Calgary, Alberta. Follow our show and engage with fellow listeners on Twitter at Powered by Vitreo. You can subscribe to Brain Trust Philanthropy on iTunes or by visiting our website at vitreogroup.ca. Wishing all of you success in your mission, peace in your lives, hope in your hearts. I'm Vincent Duckworth.